Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Thank you, Drew, for praying, and let's dig right into the Word of God. So if you're here with your Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And if you don't know where 1 Corinthians is, you open your Bible up halfway, and then you flip a little bit over to the right, And you're going to eventually find it. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. And that's chapter 14. We're looking at the first 25 verses tonight. Now, uh, it's exciting to learn some of you who are new here. Uh, For those of you that either are here for the first time tonight, or for those of you who have not been here often, you've been here a few times, um, we're moving through this book, moving through a book of the Bible, and in God's providence, he brings up a variety of issues or theological subjects for us to learn about him and what he wants for our lives. Tonight is going to sound very weird if you're new to this. That's okay. Just know that we aren't picking things to randomly talk about and we choose these really weird things. We're moving through a book and he's addressing issues that make for a healthy church. Now, the Corinthian church was extremely immature. It was a young church and they were heavily influenced by the world. They were what we would say, what we would call worldly. We've seen that in a variety of ways in chapters 1 to 11. We've seen in chapter 12 most recently that they were abusing the spiritual gifts. They wrongly viewed the spiritual gifts, and this was largely due to the fact that they failed to love one another. And that's right at the heart of this section in this book, chapters 12 13 and 14. The throbbing heart in the middle is chapter 13, which is all about love. If I don't love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then I could be the most, quote, gifted person in the world, and it's like a monkey crashing on uh, pans. It's It's just nonsense. It's annoyance. It's no good. It's actually bad. Now, why is it that the Corinthians were so tempted to counterfeit works of the Spirit? That's what they were doing there in this church. They were, they were faking works of the Spirit. Well, there's really two answers. One is paganism, the worldly influence around them. And the other is Pentecost, an event in the Christian church that really added more pressure to them because they didn't view it rightly. Now, let me explain both of those. Greek priests in the world around them would enter a shamanistic 
trance, rattling off these ecstatic gibberish words called the language of the gods. This was very common in the pagan temples. Pentecost was a Christian event. It was an obviously miraculous event where the apostles spoke languages, human languages, they had never studied or learned. It was a miracle. It was an obvious miracle. And it occurs in Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. More on that to come. Now, you can imagine these Corinthians, pressure from the outside pressure from within, simultaneously, we could elevate ourselves in the eyes of the church and in the eyes of the world if we could speak in some heavenly language. There was a lot of pressure from within and without, and that's going to be the main subject for tonight. Three points for us. Number one, worship. I'll put them in the form of a command. Worship to build the church verses one to four worship to build the church worship to benefit the church verses five to 19 to benefit the church and thirdly worship to broadcast the church to broadcast the church verses 20 to 25 first worship to build the church verses one to four Paul says, pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and encouragement One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Simply stated, Paul's very clear, prophecy builds, tongues do not. Therefore, they are a violation of love. Why? Chapter 8, verse 1, love builds up. And what's love's choicest way to build up, according to chapter 13? Patience, kindness, contentment, humility, meekness, propriety, selflessness, composure, forgiving, sin grieving, truth loving, all bearing, all believing, all hoping, all enduring, unfailing. And then what? What does Paul contrast with love? Prophecy in tongues will end, but love will not. Prophecy in tongues will end, but love will not. Paul says very clearly that prophecy in tongues are for the childhood of the church. He foresees a day that the church is going to grow up in doctrine beyond the need for prophecy and tongues. Love is permanent. Love is going to characterize the church Onward, Love is fueled by faith. Love is fired up with hope. Therefore, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love, hunt love, chase love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. I'm not saying don't desire them, 
But among all the spiritual gifts are particularly, I want you to chase this one, that you may prophesy. Childhood church, Paul speaking to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. Childhood church, be eager for prophecy. What's prophecy? What is prophecy? A prophecy is simply a word that means to speak forth. To speak forth. And it's defined in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13 and 18. Now, really quickly, this is very important. It's defined in Deuteronomy, which is in the Pentateuch, the law, the first five books of the Bible, and never, ever, 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 ever in the Old Testament or in the New Testament is prophecy ever redefined. The definition in Deuteronomy is the definition forever. True prophets, Deuteronomy says, are marked by three things. Doctrinal orthodoxy. That means what they say always agrees with what's in scripture. Moral integrity. That means they're not living unrepentant lives of sin. And predictive accuracy. That means when they seldom speak about the future, they always get it exactly right. If you find that a prophet is living in secret sin, or if a prophet says something that disagrees with scripture, or if a prophet says something will happen that does not happen, they are a false prophet, not a sometimes true prophet, a false prophet. There are just true prophets and false prophets. The requirements for prophets never change. There's no sometimes true prophet. That's called a false prophet. Jesus In his Sermon on the Mount, the apostles in 1 John and 2 Peter and every New Testament example affirms the Old Testament definition of what a prophet is. Never do we have a new kind of New Testament prophet. Does Paul ever redefine prophecy? Nope. Does Luke, Paul's closest traveling companion, that's going to become very important here in a moment. Does Luke ever redefine prophecy? Prophecy in Acts. Nope. Watch this. Luke wrote Acts after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. I bet you we tend to think Acts was written first because it speaks about the things that happened in the early church. Luke wrote after Paul wrote this letter, yet... Luke, in Acts, speaks of Old and New Testament prophets identically in many places throughout Acts. It's the same thing. God never changed up what he was doing with prophets. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 15 say a prophet is a prophet is a prophet. What we heard in the Old Testament stands true in the New Testament. If they speak for God, they must be biblical, they must be godly, they must be accurate every time, if not false prophet. Stay away from them completely. Now, what did Jesus warn about on several occasions? Matthew 7, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 says that false prophets will be legion. They're going to be all over the place. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, be on the lookout, peel your eyes, because occasionally you'll come across one. Jesus said, turn on TikTok and you'll see them everywhere. Okay, 
They're everywhere. They're common. They're popular. First John, Jesus didn't really say that, but that's a modern, that's the message translation for today. First John 4 says, beloved, listen how John, the apostle of love is pleading with the church. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. And by spirit, he defines it. He says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because what is he talking about when he's talking about spirits? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. They are either from God or they are not. First Thessalonians five, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but examine all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You know, some people will take that and they'll say, oh, what that means is you're supposed to hear the prophets speak, hear them speak, and you're supposed to dissect what you hold fast to and what you don't. No, that's not what they're saying. They're saying if they get up there and they say something that contradicts scripture, or they say something false about the future, you eliminate them completely. They're a false prophet. They either need to repent or you excommunicate them out of the church. That's very clearly what scripture is teaching. Now, here's a question for us. At any point in reading 1 Corinthians, for those of you that have been here any duration of time, should we read the Corinthians' behavior as our example, what we should do. We should imitate the Corinthians. Never, never. Uh, look back with me at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. He says, I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now... Notice this. I had to treat you like babies back then. Nothing's changed. Even now, you still are not able, for you are still fleshly. This is not good. There's nothing about what the Corinthians are doing that we should look at and imitate. It's very important. Paul is contrasting a Corinthian fake tongue in verses 2 and 4. With the real, genuine article in verse 5. The real gift, which can be interpreted. If God gives gifts to benefit his people, chapter 12, verse 7. That's what he does. That's what the gifts are for, to benefit his people. The Corinthian practice described in verses 2 to 4 is not a real spiritual gift. Very simply. He says, Four, verse two, one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but, and I believe that what Paul means here is in air quotes to God who they're talking. They say they're talking to God, but they're definitely not talking to men for no one understands, not even an interpreter, but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. He's, he's speaking nonsense to himself. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. That is not a spiritual gift. That's contradictory with what a spiritual gift is. It builds up others. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. That's a gift. 
Look at chapter 10, verses 23 to 24. Not all things build up. Listen, let no one seek his own good, but that of the other person. Whatever the Corinthians are doing with this fake counterfeit tongue, it's not a spiritual gift. It's something carnal. It's something fleshly. It's very exciting, but it's sin. They are not to be doing it. Really quick question. If we could speak in some heavenly language, wouldn't we have seen Jesus do it just once? Just once. Matthew 6, instead, Jesus says in his most famous sermon, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. The word is batalageo. The word is sounds, onomatopoeias, as the Gentiles do. Do not be like them. It's pretty clear, isn't it? There's not one example of a heavenly language. There's not a single clear instruction in Scripture on it. But, verse 3, what act of worship did build the church? What act of worship did the Corinthians, were the Corinthians right to want in their midst? One who prophesies speaks to men for edification, there we go, and exhortation, there it is, and encouragement. Ah, yes, that's what we want. Verse 31, look at the end of the chapter. So that all may learn. No one's learning from a tongue. Whatever you're doing, babbling like the the pagans in their temple, that's not helping anyone. But when someone prophesies in the church, everyone learns and all may be exhorted. Now, Christ gave prophets to teach the church, and as they're teaching the church, the New Testament is being compiled. Guess what that's like? That is exactly like the Old Testament. God sent prophets to his people, they spoke, and the Old Testament was compiled from what they prophesied. Guess what God did in the New Testament? Same thing. Verse 4, Paul now cuts. He's, he's contrasting. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, not a spiritual gift. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. There it is, spiritual gift. The word of God and not Corinthian gibberish is what builds the church and excites godliness and comforts struggling Christians. That is how faith, which is believing the truth about God, works through love. That's what makes a healthy church. That's actually what gets Christians loving each other. That's what gets you guys serving. I'm so proud of you, by the way. We maxed out the servant spots on Wednesday night. That thrills me because that's a mark of health. That means you're listening to the word of God. You're believing the word of God. You're loving the body. Yes, all day long. That's what we'll take. But if I got up here and I said, yabba, 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 dabba, do or whatever, you aren't going to be serving on Wednesday night, are you? You're not going to be loving one another. That's not going to help anyone. Because the worship of God is not built on feelings. Not built on feelings-based emotional experiences. But by knowing God through biblical doctrine. Doctrine's not the goal. 
but doctrine's the mechanism through which we see God rightly. We see Christ rightly. That's point one. Point two, worship to benefit the church. Verses four, I'm sorry, verses five to 19. Glad to see those of you that are joining us from the new members class. Very encouraged to see you over there. Worship to benefit the church, verses five to 19. Now Paul defends the real God-given gift. Now Paul's saying, okay, there is a real gift of tongues and I want you to know what that is. Verse five. But that means that's a contrast, right? That's contrasting with the Corinthians fake gift. But I wish that you all spoke in tongues, the real ones, but even more that you would prophesy. So even the real thing, even the real gift of tongues doesn't come close to the gift of prophecy. Tongues is not best. And, Paul continues, greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues. Unless the one who speaks in tongues translates so that the church may receive edification. So this untranslatable babbling has no place in the church, Paul says. It should never occur. It will not benefit. It's forbidden. Whatever the Corinthians were doing, knock it off. Now, back in chapter 12, verse 30, Paul clearly said that not all people, not all Christians speak with tongues. So he's stressing a point here when he says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. What's the point? He's saying this. I wish all of us had all the spiritual gifts. Can you imagine if we were omni-gifted? All of us have all the spiritual gifts, but since we don't, I want you to have the most beneficial gifts. I want you to value the most beneficial gifts. But what's the most beneficial? Verse 6. But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you? What will I benefit you if not to speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Translation. Tongues is unnecessary. He's looking at a congregation of Corinthians. He says, you all speak Greek, so I will preach to you all straight in Greek. Simple. Now, Paul illustrates his point twice in verses 7 to 8. He says, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? But if the instrument, for if the trumpet produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? You get the images that he's painting for us? The Corinthian fate gifts, the Corinthian fate tongues, are like a little kindergartner tooting a single note on a kazoo, expecting you to hear, Mary had a little lamb. He says, we, we, we can't, I can't make sense of that. I can't have, there's no meaning in it. The Corinthian fake tongues were like teenagers waking a boot camp by blowing a trumpet, random notes off it. Instead of the recognizable first call, you know that means wake up, get ready, get going. If you hear, wah, 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 
You're going to think someone's pranking us. They're going to pull the pillow over their head. They're going to go back to sleep. They're not going to do what they're meant to do. Sound is worthless without meaning. The yabba dabba doo is doing nothing for the church. Knock it off, Paul's saying. Now, Paul contends an untranslated Corinthian fake tongue is a fraudulent prank causing chaos and confusion in the church. Verse 9. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue a word that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Now, isn't Paul being clear? Paul's being very clear for us. If listeners don't understand, it's not a spiritual gift. It's some fleshy show that you're putting on. But it's not a spiritual gift for the benefit of the church. Now, really quickly, take a breath, breathe, breathe for a moment. Let's relax. That's a lot. It's a fire hose. Now, the perfect break I could give you is a history lesson. So I'm going to give you more Bible here. History lesson, Luke. Luke was a Greek convert. He converted under Paul's ministry. He joined Paul as a missionary. He was with Paul in Corinth. He watched Paul plant this church. He was there with him. A few years later, Paul wrote Corinthians, wrote his letters to the Corinthians. Five to seven years after that, Luke wrote Acts. What's the point? Everything we read, everything we know about Pentecost in Acts 2 was written long after everything we read in Corinthians. Why is that a big deal? Why doesn't Luke... Paul's closest confidant ever mention a different tongue in Acts from Acts 2. Acts 2 is human languages that people there hear. They go, That's, these guys are speaking my tongue. They're speaking my language. Luke never, ever, he writes Acts after 1 Corinthians and never does he validate some heavenly language. Never. Says that, I never saw that happen. He's writing the history of the church. He's writing the history of Paul. Acts 2 is unmistakably intelligible human languages. Paul confirms that in verses 10 to 11 of chapter 14. There are perhaps a great many kinds of sounds in the world. He's meaning languages. And none is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of a sound, I will be to the ones who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Does anyone know how the word barbarian came about? It's actually a derogatory slur for non-Greek speakers. Who, when they speak, sound to Greek speakers like bar, 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 bar. They're making fun of them. Really, that's, that's historically accurate. So you can imagine the Greeks, and they're looking up at the Germanic barbarians. Anyone German in here? Okay, it's a lot of us, I think. Bar, 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 bar. That's how you sounded to the Greeks. So they said, oh, you're barbarian, right? Point. 
Paul is using technical language to say the gift of tongues is real human languages, but it remains unintelligible to the other person if untranslated. It sounds like the Germanic barbarians are saying bar, 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 bar. They're speaking a sophisticated language, though. And it can be translated. It can be learned. What's the application? Verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Burn for church edification. Not personal experience. We have fallen prey in American Christianity to an individualized worship experience. And it is antithetical to scripture. It's antithetical to Christian worship. How serious is Paul? Verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may translate. He's being funny. Some idioms translate from one language to another. He's saying this. If you're going to speak a tongue, you better pray that you can interpret it. Because it's worthless unless you're able to. Why? Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. You may feel spiritual, but no one around you is helped. You're not loving anyone except yourself. Practical application. If I'm not sure someone in the room can and will translate, verse 28 of this chapter says, do not speak. Don't do it. It's forbidden. Verse 15. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Mindless worship is not worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. The deepest feelings are meaningless if detached from truth in the mind. You understand? So much of Christian music is so unhelpful, you guys, because it's just titillating the flesh it's tickling tickling the ears and it's not feeding the mind with truth about god that's not worship you can get the same experience listening to a classic rock song every believer could share in the truth of a prophecy god a spokesperson for god but none can share in your individual emotional experience. That's Paul's point here. So it's unloving to emphasize that. Chapter 14, verse 16. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the uninformed, you know what word that is? It's the word idiotes. You know what word we get from that? Idiot. It's the, the, originally, the idiot is the one standing in the corner left out. It wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a, a cruel thing. It was, you feel like an idiot. You're the one left out. Okay? So how does the one who fills the place of the idiot say, amen, at your giving of thanks? Since he does not know what you're saying, he feels like an idiot. And he thinks you probably look like an idiot. The elitism of the Corinthians, the elitism of the unhealthy charismatics, 
who stress tongues makes others feel like excluded idiots. I don't know what they're doing. I can't participate in what they're doing. Whatever they're doing is just for them. It's not for me. In some of the extreme cases, they'll say, you have to speak in tongues to be a believer. You're not really a believer unless you can speak in tongues. This is clearly opposing that thinking. Your brothers and sisters in Christ can't even agree with a hearty amen. That is diametrically opposed to the love of Christ. Why? Corporate worship. Corporate worship is not for private spiritual moments. Corporate worship with the body of Christ is not for your private spiritual moment. The dark sanctuary, the smoke, not being able to see your brothers and sisters actually harms worship. It works against Christian worship. Verse 17, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Worship begets oneness. You see that in chapter 1, verse 10. Let me bring it down to you. You don't come to church for you. You come to church for us, including you. But it's us. So when we're driving to church, when we're driving out that beautiful road that we have, when you, I actually recommend when you come to church, come in that parking lot and ride up the the little windy trail up there with the parking lot. It is so beautiful. And think, I'm coming here for us, for God and for God's people, for us. This is not about me. This is about us, worshiping our God. Love dictates who and when and why and how we worship. Love loves to encourage the church. So love loves God's word, God's Prophecy in the church. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. He's not afraid to throw a punch here. I thank God that I get to speak from authority here. I speak in tongues more than any of you. Now, by the way, I believe that what Paul's talking about here is not speaking tongues in the church. He's saying, I speak in tongues on my missionary journeys, as he's later going to write in 2 Corinthians 12, that the signs of a true apostle are signs and wonders and miracles. So they go be preaching the gospel, and God would accompany that with signs, and everyone would go, my goodness, they're really speaking for God, and they would believe the gospel. But Paul, outside of 1 Corinthians 14, this chapter, outside this chapter, Paul never again mentions tongues. So is this a big deal to Paul? Is he saying, this has got to be the thing that you're doing, man? This has got to be it. He never mentions it outside of correcting the Corinthians for this one chapter. However, he darts, verse 19, in the church... You see, I speak tongues out in the mission field because I have to. They speak other languages. They need to hear the gospel. But in the church, what does he say? I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. You know what he just said? 
I'd rather say Christ Jesus died for sinners in English than rattle off a trillion foreign words to you that sound beautiful but offer you no truth. Thirdly and lastly, worship to broadcast the church. Verses 20 to 25. Tongues is not for believers. Tongues is not for believers. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Grow up. That's what he just said. Man up. Why in the world are entire denominations imitating the Corinthians? Kids are selfish. Kids crave attention. Adults, if they're healthy, learn to love. And Paul says refusing to grow up is not only immature, it's actually evil. Little schoolgirls will create codes for secrets and they'll exclude others. Men and women who love the Lord, work to include their brothers and sisters in Christ. They despise anything that would exclude a brother or sister in the Lord. How must the Corinthians feel right now? An apostle just called you babies. Saying, flee the emotions, flee the excitement. Learn your Bible to encourage faith in your brothers and sisters. It's almost as if Paul says, let let me show you how. Let me show you what I mean by using the Bible. Verse 21. In the law. The law is the first five books of the Bible. In the law. It's also a word that they use for the entire Old Testament. In the law. That's God's word. Okay. In the law, it is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers. I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Say what? That's Isaiah 28. That's Isaiah 28 that he's just quoted. What did he just say? Tongues equals judgment. Why are people dancing around speaking tongues? Tongues means judgment. God vowed to judge unrepentant Israel with the tongues of Gentile languages. Tongues is a very old thing. He talked about it in the Old Testament. Verse 22. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. It's a sign of judgment on specifically Lost Jews. Think about what he just quoted. Who is this people? This people of all peoples. That's Israel. Who is it that will not listen to me? That's Israel. Watch this. Read Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. Look who tongues convicts every time. Unbelieving Israel. Unbelieving Israel. How does Acts begin? Watch this. Very fascinating. This is the, these are the, the nuggets that you, you leave with. Jesus says, the Great Commission, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. Okay? When do tongues happen in Acts? Chapter 2, in Jerusalem of Judea. Chapter 10, in Caesarea of Samaria. Chapter 19, in Asia, beyond the land, to the ends of the earth. Is that coincidence? Definitely not. Now here, as one of the 12 apostles, go be my witnesses in the southern kingdom of Judah, in the northern kingdom of Israel, and then to all the nations outside. That's what Jesus said. We lose it because we're not familiar. Jesus always sends the gospel first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Read the the book of Romans. Now, what's the context of Acts 28? And I promise we're almost done. I've got to go to the elder meeting. I told the guys this was going to be a longer evening. I apologize, but I don't apologize. Sorry, not sorry. The northern kingdom has fallen. Gentiles have conquered it. The southern kingdom of Judah deserves the same judgment. God tells them to repent. The leaders of Judah mock Isaiah's prophecy, making fun of him, by the way, for preaching God's word expositionally. It's funny. They mock him. They go, it's always precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Golly, the guy just teaches the Bible line by line. Isn't it boring? And they reject Isaiah's prophecy, so God curses them. He says, you're not going to listen to my word. You ignored Isaiah's prophecy, and so I'm going to ensure that you never understand my word with the tongues of other nations. You're not going to like hearing a bunch of Gentile tongues coming and speaking in your land. 117 years later, isn't God patient? God sends the babbling Babylonians just as he warned centuries prior. Deuteronomy 28. This is Moses' time, way before Isaiah. Yahweh will bring a nation against you from afar, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. God's going to repeatedly warn them after Isaiah. Jeremiah 5. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, a nation whose tongue you do not know. Golly. Repeatedly warned them. Moses. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all say tongues means judgment. It would be unthinkable to them that Christian worship services feature tongues, especially made up ones. Now, what happens? Right after Pentecost, a few decades after Pentecost, when God's prophets, God's, God's apostles, preach repentance in Jerusalem. Rome levels Jerusalem for good. Oh, that reminds us of Isaiah 28. Oh, oh, I see. What in the world are the unhealthy charismatics doing? There are many, there are many men that would consider themselves charismatics that, that I, I've learned a great deal from. Okay, I'm not abominating charismatics. 
Tongues summon lost Jews to repent. That's it. That's all they did. Verse 22. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Who's listening to Moses? Who's listening to Isaiah? Who's listening to Jeremiah? The believers. Yes, they're few in number, but they're there. The believers. Think about what Peter says about prophecy in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 21. We saw King Jesus transfigured on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, and God the Father spoke. Peter doesn't mention that God the Father said, Peter, shut up, but he's getting the basic details across. And we have as more sure. He saw transfigured Jesus. He had personal experience. You want to talk about a mountaintop experience? You want to talk about emotional high? Peter is seeing Jesus as he'll appear when he returns. He saw Moses and Elijah. He heard God the Father speak. And he says, We have, you and I church, we have as more sure than that the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Where do we find prophecy, folks? Where do we find it? Do we go hunt down a prophet on the street? We've got all the prophecy God's given written down. It's more sure than if you saw Christ appear in this room. It is more real, more true than what you know that you know. This word of God. Your emotions are fleeting and deceiving. Sisters, brothers, I'm telling you as one who's learned from personal experience, my emotions fail me daily. The word of God never fails me. The prophetic word of scripture. Therefore, verse 23, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and uninformed men, those are the idiots, or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Literally, the Greek reads high, insane, raving lunatics. Aren't people going to think you're crazy? What's, pri- what's Paul's primary concern? Corinthians. Your attempts to impress the world and other Christians only isolates them and robs them of the gospel. How do you expect lost souls to repent if you waste all your time together faking a sign of judgment? What in the world are you doing? The gospel is at stake. Bethel's school of witchcraft and wizardry is a very cheap knockoff of paganism. I'm going to say it, and I'm not going to apologize for it. What's going on up there in Northern California is a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is absolutely insulting to God's glory. Not going to apologize for that. Verses 24 to 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed man enters the church service, guess what happens? 
He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that surely God is among you. Preaching the word of God line by line, like Isaiah and Moses and Jeremiah and Peter and Paul, performs real miracles like conviction of sin and repentance from sin so that the hearts are exposed and the God of grace is known that I'm a great sinner, but he's a greater savior. Con artists counterfeit true worship by slaying in a spirit of base emotions, but God wants sinners to believe the gospel and be saved from their sins to the loving embrace of a glorious Christ and that the weight of His holiness and the wonders of His love overwhelm them so that they would fall on their face and say, God's in this place. May the whole world know that God surely is among us. Father, we want grace and mercy to worship you according to your word. Lord, oh, Father, if there's anything in my speech, and I'm sure there is, which needs forgiveness, oh, Father, forgive me. But, Lord, protect these souls. Protect them from error. Protect them from false worship. Bring them to see the true living God and to worship you the way you tell us you ought to be worshipped. There is life and freedom, liberation from sin, and love, and the wonderful face of Christ, your Son. Oh, Father, we thank you that your word is more sure than if we were to see him now this night. So help us not to lean on our personal, emotional experiences, but to grow in grace from faith to faith. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.